Welcome everyone to another episode of the podcast. We're going to keep today quick and sweet for the intro. As always, please make sure you follow me on Instagram at Felix.Levine. Follow me on TikTok, Felix Levine. My YouTube channel, you can watch all video versions of every single podcast there. And let's get into today's fantastic episode. And my guest today, he has a very interesting life story. He formerly went to prison and then came out and has changed his life for the better. He started a podcast that has since taken off and uh, is really on the path to redemption. So you'll have to let me know what you think. But please welcome my guest today, Ian Bick. And we're live. Ian, thank you so much for, for coming in. Um, very excited to get you on my show. A lot to, to dive into. But first, is there a little tidbit, a little story, a little something the world doesn't know about you from what's already out there? And, and there's there's quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, the, there's so many like crazy stories. Well, you know, one, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, we connected over Instagram. <laughs> yep. Um, you got a, like a cool little Instagram Thank page you, going for you. Uh, you've Appreciate had some uh, pretty known guests, you know. I uh, saw so you had Billy McFarlane yeah. on the show. <laughs> well, that's funny. I was going to talk to you about Billy, but yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, but, um, you know, like I would say like one of the stories that like I've never really like told that much um, because everyone focuses on like when people have me on the podcast or like, why'd you go to jail? And um, what um, what about um, like prison and this? And those are the same stories that like I tell and, and whatnot. Um, but a lot of people don't get into like the nightclub stories. And I remember there's one time we booked Steve Aoki, uh, you know who Steve yep. Aoki is. And um, it was supposed to be at the college campus next to the club I owned. Okay. And the college ended up shutting it down um, because it was this event called Hyperglow. Um, and they didn't want that there. And so they shut it down and Hyperglow called me because they usually did their events okay. with me. Um, but because it was Steve Aoki, it was going to be too big for that venue. And they were like, hey, great news. You know, Steve Aoki's coming to your club. Which, you know, if you're a nightclub owner, like that's huge because right. Steve Aoki would never in a million years play at a club right. like mine. <laughs> and so um, they marked it as sold out. We had sold like 2,500 tickets. They refunded whatever the Westcon had. Um, but on their ticketing site, they had about 25. My legal capacity was only, you know, 500. But Jesus you could Christ. fit, like the city was kind of screwing me over. You could fit so many more people in that club. You could probably realistically fit legally. The legal capacity should have been fifteen hundred. Okay, and you know there's always room to do more. So like we we emptied everything, like every nook and cranny in that place. We emptied it. Anything that didn't need to be there, we like ripped out like some platforms. Did whatever we could to make it as big as possible. And this building shaped like an L. So this night comes. Um, it's like a Saturday night. We marketed doors to open at seven p.m. But we knew it, since it was so many people coming, we had the doors open by five. We were getting people lined right. up. There was a crazy crowd. Well, 6.50 comes along and the fire marshal shows up, uh, which is like what he normally does, normally later on in the night, on um, make sure everything is good capacity and fire safety-wise. Well, this time he brings a clicker, and he has a clicker to keep track of how many people are coming into the club. Oh, fuck. And at this point, you know, I'm under FBI investigation, getting ready to go on trial, this and that. Um, so they're after me big time. And what ends up happening is, is that, you know, like, while well, he comes up and he's like, Ian, how many people do you have inside? I'm like, oh, we got like 10 or 15. Um, we just opened doors. Had he walked through the doors to the building, he'd realize there was like 600 people in there already, but he didn't. 
took us at our word, set his clicker to 15, and he starts clicking. So in my head, I know we have a clicker too. And we're like, there's already six, 700 people in there, and we still have like 1,800 more to go. So I put guys up on the roof. We had like a balcony roof with binoculars and walkie-talkies. They were looking out and the back way behind the building. And, you know, while all the cops and the fire marshals are focused in the front, we're rerouting everyone on the side street through the back, through the backstage door into this venue. So now the fire marshal clicks in like 600 people. He lets us go a little over. And then he's like, okay, you know, you're at capacity. You can't let any more in until more people come out. So you do like in and out because we didn't do re-entry. And um, we're like, yeah, no problem. At that point, there was like 100 or 200 more people to come in. We knew people were leaving and whatever. So he's like, I'm going to do my walkthrough. He does a walkthrough through the place. There's at least 2,500 people in the building having a great time. It's like 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And he comes out. Everything looked good. He's like, yeah, you know, you got about, you know, a little over probably 700 people in the place. uh, But everything looks good. (laughs) Meanwhile, there's 2,500 people in there. Like the platforms that we had were literally breaking from the amount of people that were on it. Um, But the event ended up going flawlessly. It was a great night. And he never knew it to this day about what happened. And that was just like one of the crazy nightclub stories. So how old were you at that point? I was 21. Actually, no, I was 20. I was turning 21 that May. This was March 2016. So, and so you were already under, you were like... At that point, I was actually convicted already. My trial was in 2015, but I was running the club the whole time. So a lot of people don't realize is that the club had nothing to do with like the federal investigation. And you were you were allowed to do that? Yeah, they kept trying to shut it down and revoke my bond. Um, but, you know, like the judge ruled, like it was legitimate legal business. What was your bond at? 250000 But in the feds, you don't pay that. Like you just sign a piece of paper. So my parents signed for like the house. Uh, oh. If I like ran away, they could go after like the house. I gotcha. So I guess before we get into all that stuff, like were you a wild child when you were growing up? Like were you, I mean, I saw the, so I saw the Vice piece that mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen. I imagine. Mm -hmm. But like, did, you know, were you, were you, were you kind of reckless growing up or did, were you more, have more of a normal childhood per se? Uh, I don't know if it was so much reckless. I was more like a troublemaker. Like I just like, I bucked authority. Um, I did what I was always, I think it goes down to, I love to be different and I love to stand out. So if there was like a rule, like don't wear flip-flops in school, I was wearing flip-flops. I used to walk around a shirt that said, this is what happens when you party naked, like one of those Hollister right. shirts. Um, you know, like I did things like that. I always did whatever I could to stand out. Why? Why do you think that was? It's probably because I, you know, I was bullied as a kid and um, I didn't like when people didn't like me. Like I always liked to be liked, you know, and it always upset me when someone didn't like me. I was like a people pleaser in that sense. Was... Was it more just from people in general, like girls, friends, or all the above? Um, you know, I, I was just like this nerdy, chubby, like they called me Twinkie. And like I was I was funny, but I wasn't like the one that the girls were like after. I was always very shy around women. It probably wasn't until like after prison that I got better. And even like I would say like more recently, like getting better with women, like as you build a platform right. um, and you have more I guess, power in the DMs or whatnot, but, um, and and women kind of like reach out to me, but you know, back then I was, you know, I would not approach a girl. Do you think it was, so do you think you got into the, the nightlife scene because of that? Uh, no. So so for me, it was never about women. It was never about money. It was always about planning something. 
And I love planning. I'm very organized, love planning, love the buildup. And I loved everyone having a good time. And that business is kind of like a drug where like as soon as the event's over, you're only as good as your last event. Right. So now you're on like a fix to get right. your next one. So I never really had fun at the actual events. I loved right. planning it, loved the day of, loved all that adrenaline. But once the event was over, I was bored and ready to go to the next one. But so then if you say you had the, the money wasn't really what you were after, you could have done it on a love. I mean, like there was probably part of you that could also feel like I could do this on a smaller level without the whole making this much amount of money. But I'm sure that the money also like played into wanting to do it bigger and better every time. I think, you know, I started small. I, I was doing, I went from house parties to doing teen nightclubs with like 1,500 right. kids and I was making crazy money, like 10 grand a night in yeah. high school once a month. Um, what for me it was, was I got bored. I was doing the same thing and other individuals started copying me. So it kind of got played out. So to me, automatically, not so much about money, but the next step was to do concerts right. with big names. If you're doing nightclubs, the next step was let's start doing concerts. So it was more about that and less about the money because there would have been more money in the nightclubs. So did you think that at that point when you started getting into it and started with big money that this was what you're going to make like your living off of? Yeah, I thought I, I idolized like Scooter Braun right. um, and those like big promoters. Like I wanted to be like a Live Nation or an AEG or, you know, what Scooter was doing. Like I, I knew a lot of these like entrepreneurs that started out on my path throwing parties in college. So I was already years ahead of them for my age. I mean, I started throwing parties at 14 and turned it into a profitable business. So I really was convinced that that was my my path. So when did you, what was the turning point? And I've, I've heard some of the, you know, a little bit, So I, but I just want to refresh some of my listeners who aren't familiar with their story. When did you start taking on investor money and like making it a bigger thing than just, you know, self-funding uh, ticketed events. Senior year of high school, I had decided I wasn't going to college. And that's when I kind of went from nightclub promoter and doing my own thing to getting into the big leagues of raising money from friends and family. And so I, I was like 17. And so why did you say I need to raise money? I had, I didn't have the money to do a concert, like a concert that I wanted to do, like Big Sean, for example, was going to cost, you know, $100,000 to produce. So me, Every time I made money on a teen night, like I spent it on shit like dinners with friends or a car or anything like that. You know, I wasn't really necessarily like a saver and I didn't have my own funds. And I also knew like a, a big thing in business was you don't use your own money. You use someone else's money. So so basically you were kind of like, you know what? I've heard in business you need to use other people's money. This is my way to scale and kind of like let me figure it out on the go. Pretty much my whole life's been figuring things out on the go. I never uh, planned anything, um, never looked ahead. And that's what always got me into trouble. Did you get into any trouble before you got into trouble trouble? Like when uh, you were younger? Yeah, I mean, like we got into, we foamed like these cars in my parents' neighborhood uh, with like, um, you know, insulating foam against like the president and vice president of our community because they like banned golf carts and paintball guns. In so our just community. like dumb shit, dumb shit, nothing major. I was never into drugs, right. uh, never into alcohol. Um, you know, I was just like a good kid. Yeah. And so then when you first started raising money, it was friends and family. And like, what was the first big check you got? Um, we had like $120,000 we raised within two weeks. Uh, I think the biggest amount was 15,000. They ranged from 500 to 15,000. 
we had that in a business bank account at 17 years old. Wow. And, and that was all raised legitimately. And and so the who was the 15,000? Was it like just uh, it was my one of my business partners parents. And so were you were you guys like did you actually have like a pitch deck where you guys showing them like or was it just cuz they knew that you were making money in high school and were like fuck it. Uh we had a budget sheet that we did on like an Excel sheet yeah. and it, it was mixed with good press from the city about like a nonprofit I started for the homeless, my success with the nightclubs and the teen parties because I would let my friends like throw in a couple hundred right. bucks to get a percentage. Um, and then I looked up some bullshit contract on LegalZoom and um, I had an Excel sheet with like my expenses and that was the pitch. And did, I mean, so it kind of just seems like no one high level or adult was really like looking over what you were doing. Never. Like we never had anyone. Like, you know, a year or so later, I would consult an attorney to look over everything, get like a contract and stuff. But other than that, every decision I ever made was on me because I wanted to do it on my own. Right. I always was like, I want to do it my way, do it on my own. And not, nothing was ever like started with ill intentions. And it's funny, you know, so we talk about Billy McFarlane. Like in the beginning, I don't know when I first was like going in back into the whole fire festival situation before I had him on, you know, you flip flop on like, is this someone who's like inherently a con man or somebody who got in way too deep? I think there's people that fall on both sides of, you know, the discussion. Um, as someone who is, I guess, in, in a lot of similarities, looking at Billy's story, what do you, what do you think the and knowing how you feel of like I started this with no negative intentions, what do you think Fire Festival was? I mean. I think Billy got in over his head. I think like the biggest difference between me and Billy is that like I actually executed successful events. Like if you ask anyone in the industry, like we never did a bad show. So I would always be able to get artists or I could go right. back into that world. From like a fun and from a fun perspective, you never had a bad show. Exactly. From every financial is the other problem. I've had to like I've made money on concerts. For, yeah. You know, every it, I think Billy was a good like business guy in the beginning with whatever because he had success in the beginning. Yeah. I don't think he ever should have gotten to the music concert business because right. he was not that. And I think my biggest issue with him now is trying to do the same thing. Cause but and I get his perspective because that was me when I got out of prison. I was like, I want to open up a nightclub. That's my redemption. But the way it looks right now, like there's no, like it just doesn't look good. To do like a whole nother festival like that, the ticket prices he's charging and then selling to people saying like, it's not even, you don't have a venue, you don't have an exact date, like just all the specifics. And I don't even know how he gets away with it with being on supervised release. Because if I tried to do what he was doing on supervised release, I would be back in jail. Um, so it's just like that whole thing. You know, I think, and that was a, lot, a a big part of my growth and maturity. And maybe we'll see that with him, you know, like a year or two down, because it took four years after prison for me to realize the stuff I realize now. And he just got out last year. Right. Um, but I don't see that being successful. It's very hard in this industry. And I get why he's focused on it. But there's so many other things to be doing and to build. And, you know, you look at a guy like that, that's supposed to be this big marketer, genius person why isn't he building a youtube channel why isn't he why aren't his followers matching up to all the press he's getting you know like why isn't he building right. that it's building his brand have you you haven't had him on a show or talked to him so i hit him up 
And um, on Twitter, I DM'd him and he DM'd me back and he gave me some email to, to email. So I email that person. This was like, you know, in April or whatever. And then that person makes me email another person, which makes me email another person just for that person to say, hey, he can't do the show. We'd love to, but because you're you're a felon and he's on probation, oh. which I think that was just him blowing me off, though, too, only because like I interview felons all the time. Right. Like you could, if it's work related or for whatever, you could make that happen. And then um, one of my friends that has a podcast emailed him and he was trying to charge him like five grand to come do his podcast. I would never give that guy a dollar to do the pod. But it actually worked out for the better because when you search his name on YouTube, his story is like told like a thousand times. It doesn't really work the same. You always have to go out about it from like a different angle, you know? Like, I don't know what me and him would what would talk about that's not already out there unless he's willing to get into, like, the prison stuff. Do you do you get often compared to him? All the time. Do yeah. you what? What is it? Do you do you care? Do you? Um, I mean, I use maybe it used to bother me, but now it's like I like I look at the amount of presses he's gotten versus me and like I've barely gotten any to the level like he's been on CNN, Good right. Morning America, like Nelk Boys, major shows. And, you know, my social media and platform is way bigger than his. And I've been able to get that on my own without right. those things. And he's had two documentaries. I've had one on HBO, but it's, it's off of it now because uh, they merged with Discover. But I, I don't think there's like a, a comparison with that. And I just think like we're very different people and like you shouldn't focus on 9 million ideas without making like one successful. Like I felt like every time I was looking at his pages, there was a new idea, you know, and I get what he's trying to do. And I'm sure he has like the best intentions and he wants to pay everyone back. But when when you're in that type of hole and the challenge is like doing a festival is not the way to to pull it off. I would leverage your story and what you have going on now and building a brand. I think he could have probably did a podcast or something. Yeah. Could have done something, but the festival thing is, is I don't think it's the way. So, when you so I want to go back to to your story. Um when is so like the first event when you first raised 120 grand friends and family. Uh was that for one specific concert? Yeah, it was for a Wiz Khalifa show. Okay, yeah, so that's the one, and then he didn't show. Didn't show. My partner ended up not being able to get him. We offered everyone their money back. About half left their money in, half took their money out, um, and we took that money and put it into a string of concerts in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. And so then, were those profitable? Um, so that's like where like this thing turns it's, negative. Yeah, uh, everything was good up until that point, but the one show lost money the first one and in that moment instead of like telling my friends and family the truth that it lost money i lied and said it made money because i didn't want people to not like me how much me. did it lose it lost that show was only like 20 grand um to that uh, our stake was so i got like two grand back on that so i lost 18 right. about but instead of saying hey we lost 18 i said we made money so now i'm out the 18 plus like the five or six i said in profit but I'm thinking that the other shows would make money. Right. They all tanked. Okay. And that and starts. So why the did journey. they tank? Uh, bad promotion. I got really lazy. Like at that point, I was like the hedge fund. Like I'd get the investors and the money, and I'd give it to other promoters um, who didn't have any skin in the game. All the time, all my deals were always based on people that never had skin in the game. And so, did you maybe like after the first couple? Did you say okay that tanked? 
were you like, eh, we'll just see how the next ones do? Or did you, did you, were you changing things and it just wasn't sticking? Um, I mean, we didn't change anything. We already had them booked and, okay. and it was just like hoping I, I'm overly optimistic. I'm always thinking right. things will work out. Um, I like to see the good in everyone and the good in situations and, um, or the silver lining and they all tanked. And by the time, you know, once you tell one lie, unless you come clean, the lies add up and you keep lying right. and lying and lying and just a recipe for disaster. So how many sh So that string of shows was how many total? It was like five or six. Over how long? Oh, from January to May of 2013. So then you, so then at that point, how much money are you in the hole for? Um, like with this imaginary profit, like, you know, 50 grand, okay. 50 or 60 grand about. And are you like, you as an Ian, just like, fuck it, we'll make it back. Or are you like, fuck, there's a problem. I knew there was a problem, but I wasn't going to ask anyone for help. I was just going to figure out a way to do it. You know, like I was just always trying to buy time. Every time I've like told a lie, it was just to like buy time. And when you were losing money on the events, was it because just ticket sales were not there or was it? The first round of concerts I've done, that, which is what we're talking about, ticket sales weren't there, bad promotion. The second round of concerts, when I got into the bigger names like Tyga, Chief Keef, Kid Inc., um, people like that, all those shows were doing well, but a series of unfortunate events happened. Chief like, Keef didn't show up, um, stood me up on that, and that was going to be a profitable event. Um, just disappeared, went ghost. Uh, Tyga, you know, we had all these tickets sold. It was a $100,000 show, would have grossed 200K. And then the dean on the college campus said no bus trips, no outside bus uh, buses were allowed on campus. So we had to refund all these tickets. Um, so that lost, I, I think I ended up getting a wire transfer for 18K on that 100K investment. Um, Kid Inc., you know, it was uh, one promoter forgot to collect the opener's ticket money that they were paying to play in front of Kid Inc. Another one just robbed me, never never gave me the money for the show that I invested. Things like that would happen. Um, and that's where I got into like the big, big trouble. So did you feel like part of it was like, damn, this isn't my fault, but at the end of the day, I can't really explain that to people because like I'm the guy. I think that, you know, I it was I was the the person that took the risk in taking the money. Um, and I was that front person. But had I just, like, as soon as the first one started failing, had I just been honest with the people I was borrowing money from, it never would have got to the level that it did. Like, I was my own downfall. I kept what I thought was the right thing by stalling people to find a way to get their money only put gasoline on the fire. Right, right. And was there anybody that knew what was going on other than you, the I had realities? A, I had a business partner that, like, knew our business, was helping raise funds and stuff, but... Not really. I mean, like I kept everything pretty close, you know, to the chest. Um, I was just that type of person. I didn't want to bring anyone in. I didn't want to let anyone down. I just wanted to figure out a way to get everyone their money. That was always my intention. Even when I was running the club at during the trial and stuff, my goal was to build it up to the point where I could sell it. Right. Like that was always the intention. And what were the conversations like with your business partner? Was it like, yo, dude, were is the problem or like we'll we just need one of these to like actually hit the right way and we'll be we'll be okay um i mean i think the problem was you know not even with the business partner it was just it's a high risk business so when yeah. you're taking my business model was taking loans and stuff at a promise guarantee rate of return 
and which putting was it, usually um it started at 50 percent because we had an electronics business which was like bullshit um but it was banking on concerts which would happen months down the line which is the sh- right. you know the riskiest business ever it's not like real estate you yeah. know so when all those fail the house of cards falls down I mean, it was legitimate, like it was legitimate ideas. It wasn't like a scam. Yeah. There was legitimate things. The scam aspect of it is that I was lying to cover up the losses. Did you, so what's the most that you ever raised? Uh, from one person, I got $250,000. For like friend and family? Uh, he was a friend from high school. He had won a settlement from a gym for losing vision in his eye on a piece of equipment. He got a million bucks. So he was like... Yeah, so he gave me... And he liked the concert business. Wow. It's a high-risk business, man. <laughs> and so do you still have a relationship with him? He passed away in uh, 2019 when oh, I got out of wow. prison. Yeah, from a heroin overdose. Fuck, man. Yeah. So do you, you don't... do you, So you, have, you still have some restitution to pay? Yeah, the government like divvies it up. I pay the government monthly and then, you know, they pay however they pay i hear it's kind of nonsense the whole restitution thing their system is stupid i think they sit on the money and then like they they use it for whatever and then they pay people out you know what do you have to what what was it was like 1.3 no 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 my restitution the government was four hundred seventy-six thousand, and then um my business partner got ordered to pay like thirty thousand. which did he go to did he go to jail no he got a plea deal uh two weeks into trial they flipped him and he got an immunity deal. He got probation in state court, not to a felony, to a misdemeanor. So, and he, did he flip on you? Yeah, he flipped on me. So um, you guys, I imagine, don't have a relationship anymore. Last time I talked to him was when the documentary came out because they wanted me to try to get him to do it. Um, and he was like, ah, oh, they're not paying me enough money, this and that. And then, um, I mean, they made, I think the documentary did a good job portraying him as like a guilty party who didn't get charged when he should have because we are equal partners, you know? And and not friends anymore. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years. No, I mean I'm sure he like sees what I have going on and stuff. But you know I couldn't. I mean, I wouldn't want to switch roles with him when you think about it because I because I was able to get through that and right. do all that. It now gave me have. what I have now. Yeah. So how and how much do you have to pay back? Is it a monthly restitution payment? Yeah. So I pay a thousand a month right now. Okay. Um, but so it's like, just like a bill. Yeah, it's like a bill. I mean, like, but when I get a big deal, like if I got a TV deal or a book deal or anything you, can, you know like I'll, I'll pay them the money it's not a lot and you can negotiate it right like if like netflix gave me a quarter mil tomorrow i go to my lawyer and say here you know here's a quarter million let's right. you know let's resolve this it's not that much money you yeah. know four hundred thousand in it, it's nothing it's not anything like these guys that oh like you know billy 26 million dollars <laughs> and then like he's promoting the pay back the bohemians or, or, or whatever which you know yeah they should get money back but the u.s government doesn't give a fuck about yeah. them they want the money for the u.s investors so yeah, we shouldn't yeah. be promoting we're paying back that when you still have the u.s ones which is at 26 billion um so it's just you know I, I get the angle of it and stuff but like someone that knows the insides and how it works and how strict it is and like i'm sure all of these companies are not in his name at all do you do you feel like for you that you like when do you feel like you learned the lessons of the mistakes you made probably six months ago what what was is that a moment um you know so there was two moments one was when i was sitting down to do the hbo doc and they like i they had me in this room and i talked to them for like 12 hours like just telling my whole story for the first time 
And we never really got into prison, though. It was everything leading up till prison, like 12 hours. Um, and that was like very therapeutic because they were asking questions and they were getting my mind to think about, you know, like bullying as a kid, why I did certain things I did and everything, relationships, how other people felt. And it gave me like an outsider's perspective. Um, but I think it was like, you know, in the last few months, like when my podcast started taking off, um, just like the reflection of where I, you know, came from, what I had to go through to get to where I'm at and just the power in these stories, like my job is to interview and kind of like be a therapist to people and share their traumatic stories and they're entrusting me with that. And you kind of see how certain moments in one's lives and the decisions people make in certain moments affect the outcome of their life, whether that leads to death or prison or, or whatever, you know, or traumatic experiences. So it's really gave me like inside knowledge into the certain decisions I made in certain moments that I made that led me um, to where I'm at. Is there, I mean, do you, do you have regret on everything? Regret? No. Um, I wouldn't take anything back. I wish, you know, things could get changed. Yeah. But at this point, like it gave me what I have now. Do you think that what you know now you could have successfully executed all the, some of the failures in the past? Absolutely. If I realized that I was never a good business person and I was a marketer, cause that's what I am. Like I'm a good marketer. Um, I'm not a business person. I think the business stuff comes hand in hand with marketing in today's day and age. But like people give me offers for e-commerce or business stuff. And I'm just not interested in that because that's not my passion or real estate or anything. My passion's marketing. So had I realized back then, hey, you're the marketer, you're the promoter, focus on that. Have someone else run the finances, take the money, do whatever. So I could focus on what I'm good at. I think it would have been very successful. Yeah, but do you think also like the business, I guess your business model in a lot of ways was perhaps flawed, like that even if somebody else was running the business, um, you know, you're still going to run into the situations or at least some of the situations of like, I'm booking Wiz Khalifa in May, but it's January and I'm taking in all the sales now because you kind of have to if you're going to sell out a concert, like there's still a lot of the the same issues yeah but maybe that business person would say this isn't a good business plan let's do something else right, you know right so i think just having that person instead of me making the decisions on that um would have been better um and also maybe if that first round of concerts which if they were promoted right if i put my energy into promoting them they could have been successful and then i would have had the money to do my own thing right you know because i was just using that as like a base to accrue my own money so what were the conver when did you know that this was not even anymore just like a game but like criminally your there there were criminal implications on what you were doing? Uh December 2013 is when like the local police started investigating me, but my attorney at the time just blew it off, said this isn't going anywhere, this is a civil matter. Fast forward 6 months, like May 2014 is when I get a meeting with um the FBI. Um they um they pull up on me or the postal inspectors. And that's when I realized like, you know, this is like a criminal thing. They gave me a target letter that said, you're under investigation by the Department of Justice, FBI, this and that. Um, so that was like my real first taste of it. But I never thought I was going to go to jail. You know, no one thinks that even when you're under investigation right. and stuff, I figured we could just settle this and it'll be like, you know, it was it was an accident. It wasn't intentional. And you're and you're at that point, what? How, how old? I was... I was 18. I was about to turn 19. Did, did your, and your parents knew at that point? 
they knew after when I said we need to get an attorney after that first meeting. That's when I told my mom. My dad already knew because we had met with our lawyer months before. But, you know, that was that first time meeting with my parents to say, hey, there's like a federal investigation now. Were they upset with you in the beginning? Uh, my dad was just upset. I didn't tell him about anything and get him involved. Uh, my mom was definitely upset. She grew up like, you have to go to college. You got to do this. You got to do that. Um, so, you know, like, uh, I think my mom's happy with where I'm at now. But like, they're, like I had a great job at Whole Foods I walked away from last year. And she she didn't like that. She was unhappy with that. But now seeing like, I think when I had like Chevy Chase on the podcast, she realized like he has something. And now she's watching it and realizing Seeing is believing, you know, right. you have to see something. So when people see something, I think it changes people's opinions. Okay. So when do you know you're going to jail? When I got my bond revoked. Um, this was after trial. I made it through trial. I was still on bond and I was going out of state to Yonkers Empire City Casino and to gamble, to win money, to pay off X and keep uh. things going. That was like my cash flow. And, Sounds uh, like a t- pretty bad business model. Yeah, I would go with like 500 bucks and win like 20 grand and like pay the chain smokers off and, and shit like that. And um, it was stupid, but I got lucky and that's what kept me going. And um, my friends wanted to take the club for me and told the FBI that I was going out of state to gamble. And uh, they revoked my bond, sat there for like four weeks, and I got sentenced to three years in prison. This was 2021, October. I was 21. And so you... But the reason that you went to prison was money laundering and fraud. Yeah, it wasn't because you did the dumb shit with the going to the casino. Oh, that's why kind he, of that, it's it made kind it worse. Of, I'm sure it made it worse because the judge had already allowed me to be out on bond at, even after conviction. Okay. so he was leaning, in my lawyer and I's opinion, towards house arrest or probation. Okay, because if they're releasing you on bond and you have a chance, and you know, like I was young and stuff, and when we really knew that when my guidelines were, you know, eight to 12 years and the judge only gave me three. So the government was asking for seven to eight. We were asking for zero. He landed at three. So I think had we not pissed him off, I think we probably would have gotten house arrest. And did you, was there any part of you that when you like went to to Yonkers thinking like this could be a problem or you're probably so like, deep into it where you're like fuck it like whatever happens happens i I never thought of the consequences i was just looking at it as like i'm never going to go to jail and i need to do what i have to do to keep this going like i just did whatever it took at all costs to make this happen and did anybody know during that time period like were that were you having any conversations with friends about where you were at and what you were doing? Just the people, I got lazy. Like at first I was paying in cash, taking a cab because my license was suspended and I didn't want to risk getting pulled over, taking a cab, leaving my phone on airplane mode, paying in cash. And then I got lazy and I started, you know, having my friends that worked with me at the club drive me, keeping my phone on um, and using the debit card at the casino for the business. So when my friends that were driving me reported that I was going, they look at the transactions and they were able to pinpoint I was there. And what's the feeling when you know for, when you know you're going to jail? I mean, it's scary, man. No one ever expects that. You're 21? 21, yeah. I was 21 and you know, I was, I was sent off to federal prison. Where, and where was it? Uh, my first place was at Wyatt, and then I was in Brooklyn, then I was in New Jersey, I was in Danbury, I was in Philadelphia, I was in Wisconsin. They put me through why'd they keep, Why'd they keep changing uh, the, you? The first time I got caught 
on a video of a, on a cell phone wrestling with like some of my bunk mates. So they threw me in protective custody. Then they shipped me to Danbury. Like aggressive wrestling or just for fun? Just for fun. But they put me in protective custody and then um, they put me to diesel therapy a little bit. And then I landed in Danbury, which is my hometown. Right. And I was on the yard for 24 hours until they locked me up, put me in the shoe, solitary. And um, a guard had reported that I dated his cousin. So it was a conflict of interest. So I sat in the shoe for like four months. Uh, I looked like Alcatraz with the bars and everything. That's where I lost a lot of weight, lost like 100 pounds in the shoe. Wow. Because uh, I used to be almost 300 pounds. Wow. Lost a lot of weight, kind of like what Billy did. He went through the, yeah. the weight transformation. <laughs> and um, then they shipped me to a camp in Wisconsin. And that was like, that was like, you know, the cushy, the cushy prison. So it's funny because I've had a, I've had a bunch of former criminals on my show. Um, yeah, former Billy's, criminals. <laughs> I've had, uh, do you know John A. Light? No. He's a former hitman for Gotti Sr., okay. who I also do a, another show with. Um, and he did, he did, he did time. He did like 20 years, I think nine or 10 in solitary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and Billy talked about it as well. Like, for you, when you're in solitary, are you, what's your mindset? To me, I used Where are you to, at emotionally? I was plotting like my next, my comeback. You know, like I still have the notes to this day. I had every LLC written out, what the club would look like, real estate, everything. Like I had it all planned out, read constantly, um, was like writing down quotes, highlighting quotes, and then you live off your memories. Like you replay all the memories in your head. I'm a very visual person. So I'm thinking about old girlfriends, old clubs, this, that playing scenes in my head because that's all you have. You don't have a TV. You have your mind. So it's just like mentally strengthening your mind in there. But also, was there part of it that was comforting where the worst case scenario is that you were in jail in total for three years? Um, No, I think at first I was peaceful, like when I first got to prison because like I was so stressed with the club. But then after a while, I got bored and like you're doing the same thing. So you need some stimulation to figure out like what's next and what kept you going. And I just held on to the hope of what was going to be next. I was always planning the comeback. And did you have, did your parents visit you? Did you have friends and family or you, did you, or you weren't able to have visits? Uh, my family visited me um, a couple of times in New Jersey. My dad actually flew out to Wisconsin to see me. And I had two friends that visited me while I was in New Jersey. And that's, you know, that's when you know yeah. who's the real ones are when you're in it. When anything, it doesn't even have to be prison. Um, when you're when you're down in life, th those are the people that are, are with you. And I mean, did you ever cry in jail? Um, you know, maybe a couple of times I get teared up. Um, yeah. It's not a place you really can show emotion. You can't like sit out publicly and cry. But, you know, there was definitely nights like you're sitting on your bunk and you're like, how the fuck did I get here? And, it, you know, it's scary. I know you've talked about it on other shows, but for some of my listeners, what were some of the, the worst experiences or things that you saw? Ah, uh, you know, I saw a guy get his finger bitten off in front of me for cutting another guy in the lunch line. Um, you know, the biggest thing, my issue was everyone thought I was a sex offender because of the way I looked. I'm like this Harry Potter looking kid, the <laughs> rosy cheeks, the glasses, yeah. and... I was able to build a brand off of that afterwards, you know, on TikTok and stuff. But they all thought I was a chomo. They called them chomos, child molesters. So I got a really hard time for that. And people, I mean, what what's it like? I mean, there's always a reputation, I guess, from the outside that 
you know, sex offenders get it extra bad, but as a I guess fake sex offender. <laughs> Not fake one. What what was the what was the treatment like? So at first, like when before I had my paperwork to show I wasn't one or anyone even took the time to look me up, like you can't sit in certain places. Um, I mean like I'll tell you how sex offenders are treated. Like if you're in a room with a sex offender, they're allowed to sleep there. But after that, you know, sun's up. They got to leave the room. They have to mop it. They clean it in the morning. Then they have to leave. Can't come back until they're, they're ready to sleep because it is, there's a lot of sex offenders in the feds at these lows. Um, they're treated like scum, you know, like they got separate tables. Um, they're not really looked at, you know, as great people. Um, so that's how they treated me. But how do you, did you tell people like, Hey guys, like I'm not a sex offender. Yeah. And they would say like, well, what are you here for? And I'd say fraud. And they're like, well, that's what they all say. Uh. Um, <laughs> and also in like their defense, there's no 21 year olds in federal prison for fraud. Right. You right. know, it's very, very slim chances that there's a, a white kid in prison at 21 for fraud. Were you, were you the youngest person in, in the feds? I would say one of the youngest. There was a lot of like 18, 19 year olds getting caught up. Yeah, gang members and RICO cases yeah. um, for drugs, guns. But I I would say the youngest for fraud. Uh, maybe you'd run into a couple of young people that were there for credit card fraud, but most of that shit's with the state, you know? So um, it was, uh, I was definitely one of the youngest. Did you ever get beat up? A couple times, yeah. I was, you know, yanked up into the bathroom. Guys were trying to extort me, wanted me to get money on their books and pay them for protection and, and, you know, crazy stuff like that. It was never really like a beat up. It was like a slap, you know, because they don't want to leave any marks because if you're going the counselor and stuff, if a white guy's going the counselor and it looks like, you know, he's beat up, they're going to say, well, what happened? You know, and they always think the white guys are going to turn first, which is most of the time true, you know, but so they are careful with that. Did you turn? No, I, I never turned. Did you have any friends or allies? Um, I made some friends like I was always uh, I'm, I'm easy to get along with. So I just befriended some of the bigger, you know, like blacker dudes, the guys that were high up in gangs and stuff, took care of them and they kind of looked after me. I think a big attribute I've always done well with is like my personality. So when you get people to like you, um, not in like an ill intent way, but just if people like you and they see you and they vibe with you, people are going to do business with you. They're going to trust you um, and they're going to protect you. What describe the worst conditions of any of the jails you went to? Um, I mean, they all weren't terrible. It was just like the solitary. I think that's like what fucks with you the most when you're literally in a cell all day, you know. And you were twenty four hours. Yeah, and you're you're sometimes they let you out for rec on the weekends. You're not getting out at all. You know, you're forced to smell like your bunkmates' shit and piss, and like you you go crazy. You know, you're in like the cell all day long. You're not getting that human interaction. And so what's a, what's a day in solid in, in your worst, you did how many months, four months in solitary? I did a total of six because a couple were in different prisons. And I mean, what's the day look like? You, I would usually skip breakfast because breakfast comes at like 6 a.m. And I was like dieting at that point because they'd normally put like a pastry on there and I don't drink milk. Um, so wow. they, uh, I would give my bunkmate the pastry and I would sleep you know, maybe until like nine o'clock. And then once I'm up, brush my teeth. I would always skip rec unless when I was in Danbury, I would go out and get some fresh air. Yeah, why would colder. you skip rec? You don't want to go out. It's a pain in the ass. You got to get handcuffed. They take uh, you out and they're just bringing you another cage, you know. But in Danbury, I actually met some people and was talking to guards and stuff. Uh, but most of the time I'd skip rec. And, I, you know, I, I used as a time I always had a bunk bait that would go to rec. So that's your alone time in the cell. 
you know, without him present. Yeah. Um, you know, you wake up and then it was all, I was reading a book a day. Like I read the Harry Potter series. I read the Twilight series, read all these series, you know, the Hunger Games. Um, I'm a, I like those type of stories, read a lot of James Patterson. And, uh, I just engulfed myself in that. Cause I, you know, just seeing those like kind of visually on, 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 in the book. Did you work out? Yeah, I did a lot of push-ups, sit-ups, that's, you know, and then just ate. I was eating two meals a day. Can't get any snacks. There's no commissary um, in solitary. And, you know, I'd eat two meals a day and it's, you know, you, you're going hungry pretty much because they're yeah. light meals, you know. What, they're not what are the, the best meals. Like? It's a normal prison food, but you're not getting seconds. They're not big portions. Um, so, like, you know, Sundays was brunch, like pancakes or waffles, two hard-boiled eggs. Um, there were sloppy joes. There was, you know, hamburgers. Chicken day was the best. On Thursdays, you get like the half-baked chicken. Um, things like that. But if it was a bad side or unedible or whatever, it wasn't good, you know? The yeah. holiday meals were always the best. You got a full, like I remember my first Christmas, you got a full Cornish hen. I was like, holy shit, this is great. <laughs> yeah. um, Martin Luther King Day, they gave fried chicken. Huh. Um, things like that. On Christmas, you got a Christmas bag like filled with like Keebler cookies and Oreos and wow. stuff. That sounds okay. I no. feel like people say, yeah, well, Oreos and, well, I'm, I'm sure it's not delicious. No, it's it's like, ven <laughs> picture like every item in a vending machine put in a bag. It wasn't terrible. And when inmates will make you commissary food, I mean, it's good. And then when you're at the camp and we were getting like Chinese food, sushi smuggled in, pizza, oh. um, everything. As they're living. Yeah, McDonald's, Burger King. We were eating good. <laughs> so, so. I mean, it's it's interesting to hear your story in, in comparison to some some other ex-cons that I've had because I think like, and I don't know if it's the way that you're portraying it or just different experiences altogether, but like I think for, for the others, there's a lot of like fear and like depression because I think they didn't know how long they were going to do. Maybe it's extended time in solitary. Um, did you ever feel like completely hopeless? No, I'm like, I'm a very hopeful person. Even in times where I feel hopeless, I'm still very hopeful. Right. Like I go through moments like we all do, you know, there's going to be times where something happens and you get sad, whether it's like a breakup or anything, right. you know, you go through those moments and I'm the type of person that converts that energy into motivation. Right. I take that, I hit the gym or I build the podcast or I build clients or I do whatever, you know? And if I didn't have that ability, I would probably be a very depressed, hopeless type person. So when you're approaching the end of your sentence, is it one of those? Because I've also had situations that I've heard where like it's kind of undetermined exactly what day you're getting out. Like I had one ex-con that was on my show where they told him it was going to be like May and then it was actually six months later. I forget what the exact his situation was. But did you know for sure like on X date I'm going to be out? Um, so in the feds, they tell you your halfway house date. Like you, So there's three dates you have. You have your halfway house date, you have your good time release date if you don't take halfway house, and then you have your max out date where the max out date is if you get every incident report and you lose all your good time, that's the most you can do. So okay. in my case, that was three years. Okay. My good time date was like six months before that. That was May of 2019. My okay. max out was in October or November. And then my halfway house was January 2019. Okay. In September of 2018, my case manager said, hey, you got four months halfway house, you'll be January 27th. That date will only change unless the halfway house cancels it or if i get an incident report and i lose good time and then they'll push it back by x amount of days and so when did you get out january like 27th or 28th of 2019 and 
how exciting was that? It was good. Um, you know, um, I took a plane back from Wisconsin to Connecticut. Like alone? Are you? Yeah, alone. They pay for the flight. They give you like thirty really? bucks. Yeah, they paid for the flight. They gave me thirty bucks and travel money on a ca- uh, cash, and then you get your commissary money, but they don't activate the card till like two days later. <laughs> so I took the plane back. My dad picked me up, gave me a duffel bag with clothes, and I went to my parents' house to see them. And then you know, I went to the halfway house. I think like that didn't really feel like freedom because you're still like the halfway yeah. house. There's so many bullshit rules. And regulations, you can't get a smartphone. Like it's not the best. But I think once I got off the halfway house, how long were you there for? Uh, like four months. But then some of that was on home confinement under the halfway house. But my case was a little different because when I got off halfway house to start probation, I went on the ankle monitor because that, that was a part of my sen- sentence for how long? A year. So that okay. sucked. But half of it was during COVID, so everyone was kind of oh home, right, you know. Um, but at that point, I got a job at Whole Foods, and you know, I started as a, as a cook for fifteen bucks an hour. Okay. Which wasn't terrible, yeah. Um, but I had to get a second job to, to you know live off of. I, I moved out of my parents' house, got my own place, rebuilt my credit, got a car, got a dog, got an apartment, did all of that, got credit cards. And I mean, you know, I think it's where people have to to give you a lot of credit too. Is like I, you know, you see a lot of former criminals and. It's, I've talked to them. It's really hard to rebuild your life and rebuild it fairly quickly. Um, do you feel like the government aided you or the justice system aided you in your rehabilitation into regular society? Hell no. They don't do anything for you. You know, they, they don't care one way or the other. Like I had a meeting with the Department of Justice like two weeks ago because they want more money. You know, they see you making money. They oh. see the social media numbers. They don't know how it works. They don't understand it. Yeah. They're like, where do you get your money from? And I'm like, well, it's not a cash business. You could see everything. They're like, yeah, but like, we don't understand. So like YouTube pays you. Yeah. Like they don't get that. So <laughs> they skip past all that after. And they're like, so what can you pay? And then you reach a number, you know, they don't care about anything else. Yeah. And they don't even care if the if the people get their money. They care about collecting it from you. Right. And so that's why you think them. that they're just like sitting and fucking around. Yeah. I mean, like the prison system's not designed for you. They're not giving you tools. The prison system's great if you go into it with no GED and they'll give you a GED or maybe a college thing. But if you come out of prison with a college diploma, that doesn't mean shit. How tricky was it to get you the job at Whole Foods? It was easy because I had that job before I went into prison. Um, oh. And I left on good terms. And I showed them my work ethic and they gave me a chance to rehire me and I just proved you know at every corner I was a hard worker and I moved up very fast I mean in three years I became a team leader and I was you know I was working in some city stores helping them open stores Um, I worked in Long Island helped them open up a store I was making 33 bucks an hour when I left and then the overtime was crazy yeah Um, I probably would have made a hundred last year with all of that Wow. Um, but I had to bust my ass you know I was working 60 70 hours a week um, but I was all in, you know, I was very dedicated. To and none of, I mean, part of you though, I'm sure it probably hurts the ego when you're not in the nightlife and there's still, cause you know, you were saying that you, you had all these redemption plans and LLC names written, like part of you probably wanted to get back into that. No, you know, when COVID hit that, I was all like, I, I made the right choice and I was happy. I had a girlfriend, things were good, you know, it's building relationships until it wasn't, until I got that feeling, I guess, which is like what every entrepreneur has right. and, and what you're born with of not being fulfilled. It's like those people that are in relationships and one day you wake up and you're like, is this is a person I want to spend the rest of my life with. Right. So for me, it was like, do I want to work at Whole Foods the rest of my life? And 
I'm young, no family, like no, no kids, no wife. Now's the time to take a risk. I could always go back to Whole Foods. So I quit. I put in my two weeks and I started going on TikTok. And so talk to me about the TikTok rise. What was, you just were like, fuck it, I'll make some videos and see what happens? Yeah, my friend was telling me, start making videos about prison. And, you know, I started on Instagram and Instagram, like it did some views, but then I moved to TikTok. And the thing about TikTok is it's got this insane algorithm where yeah. you could have zero followers and yeah. your videos could do millions. Yeah. So my fifth video did like 1.5 million and that got me followers. And then like within the first two months, 10,000. And then, you know, within four or five months, I had 100,000 followers on TikTok. But I wasn't making any money because right. at that time they didn't have the new creator program. Um, and I, but the one thing I did that was smart was I was simultaneously building my other platform. So when I made a TikTok, that same clip would go on my Facebook, would go on my YouTube. Before I ever posted a YouTube video, yeah. a full length, I had 3,000 subscribers just from shorts. I was wow. always, and I would post every day shorts on everything three to five times a day. My Facebook now has almost 100,000 subscribers. My wow. YouTube has gone from 3,000 in January to 170,000 now wow. um, in November. And that's all, you know, short form content is the key, pushing it. And then obviously things changed once I got into long form and, and whatnot when I started the podcast in January, but it's still in its infancy. And now we're just going to take a quick break to talk about my longtime sponsor in U.S. Wellness Meets. They just recently revamped their website, so everything that I'm about to tell you can be found at their all-new and improved uswellnessmeets.com website. At uswellnessmeets.com, you can choose from over 350 foods raised the way nature intended. That includes 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, lamb, bison, elk, and dairy. They also have pasture-raised heritage pork, wild-caught seafood, and pasture-raised poultry. These are some of the host of foods that you can find at uswellnessmeats.com where the owners are the actual farmers themselves. And now they've introduced a subscription food delivery service and curated sample farm bundles. Choose the bundle of food you want to receive every month and they'll deliver it right to your door automatically. It's never been easier to serve your family real, honest-to-goodness food without the junk. U.S. Wellness Meats is the choice of championship sports teams, professional athletes, chefs, world-class trainers, and families just like yours all over America. Use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to save 15% off of every order at uswellnessmeats.com. Now let's get back into it. And I have a lot, and honestly, that thank you for reminding me because I think you know my. It's powerful to see that. I think also what I've noticed is like, when you go to the, you know, call it the jail genre or mm -hmm. the crime genre, the ability for virality, and especially the way that I think you speak about it is very um, educated and you speak well so uh it resonates with a lot of people but i think you're also kind of and I don't, correct me if, if i'm wrong but like a perfect genre for virality and like an ability to grow in ways that i'm sure when you started it you probably couldn't have imagined in january you'd be sitting here today with where you're at i think what i've learned is yes it's a viral genre but it's no different than the women that are able to create podcasts and talk about sex, because that's a viral genre too. Right. What I've realized is in everything and in business and in these types of genres, you need to have a new spin on it. So my spin was that I'm I this see. white nerdy kid that starts a pod, because this prison genre, no one really has podcasts. Right. The mob guys somewhat, but no one understands right. that there's so much that goes into podcasting right, with right. the ads. Like right. there's prison YouTubers 
And then there's prison TikTokers. I was the first one to create like an actual, besides like Johnny Mitchell. Yeah. But to create like that element and the difference is I'm an interviewer that's been to prison. So mm. you come in with the good questions, a good thought process, the good production with my point of view on it. It's a, it changes it. And that's why I think honestly, so I think that's how I found you to begin with was either TikTok or Reels. And then I started looking more at your store. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Would love to get them on. Um, and then since I followed you, I think a month or two ago, I ha I mean, I have to give you credit. You are, it's like clockwork. It's every single day you're posting something. And like, I mean, do you, do you, do you how do you go about it? Do you schedule like my 10 a.m. to 11 a.m.? I'm, I'm posting content. Like what, what's the process? Um, no, I, I don't. I was, it's funny you ask because like Alex or Jordan was yeah. asking me the same thing earlier. Um, I post everything on my own. Every clip you see, I make myself because I, as the interviewer, yeah, I could ship it off overseas, but I know what's going to go viral. I base my questions off of what I think has potential. And I sit, I do two episodes a week. So I have unlimited okay. content right. instead of stretching one for the whole week. Cause you need the amount of clips I'm doing. I'm putting up four to five a day wow. on all platforms, each platform. Always, are you always like on Instagram? You're always sharing to your feed or is it? So for Instagram, what I found is the trick is one a day. And you know, maybe if they start paying me, then I'll do more, but I've just been doing for the last month, one a day in the morning, and they've been doing great. Interesting. And I, you, the other tricks I've learned is that you always use their caption tools. They're like, you put captions on through another app, which I think if you have good content, you don't even need captions. Um, but the titling, like, you know how I'll do an Instagram reel and it's like the white bar. Right. I used to do it like on Premiere. You do it and these apps want you to use their tools. And then they'll push you. And they'll push it. And if it looks good, it's good content. And I just do one a day and I switch it up. Like if a new episode drops and the following morning, I'll do something. Everything goes to my feed, but I take it off my profile grid. So it oh, okay. always goes to my feed, but I clean up my profile grid unless I did a collab with someone, which I right. really don't like doing unless it's a good clip because that permanently sits on my page. Until you uncollab. Until I uncollab. Yeah. But I mean, like, I don't want to be like rude daddy yeah, hit him yeah, with the yeah, uncollab. No, so like the ones I did with Mike Rappaport are on there. I mean, but I made those clips for him. So I was happy with them. Um, and I get, you know, it's give and take, but ideally I try to clean it up. And I've also been posting more photos. Interesting. Um, so it makes it look a little better. But yeah, I just leave the reels and, and they've been doing well. Like, I, you know, the ones I've been doing the last few days have, have hit good numbers and some pop, some don't. But I think when you have the good production value yeah. and good catchy things, 100%. And, you know, you can't have someone else run it in right. that sense. You know, right. that's why Alex Cooper is so successful. Yeah. Making her clips, editing her own podcast. You know, anyone could, you could have anyone do it. Yeah. I think when you get into the nitty gritty and you put in the work, that's what it, it makes the difference. For you, other than, um, you know, just reacclimating in general, like, do you feel like you fully reacclimated into society or there's parts of you sometimes that feel very, that still feel maybe a little bit isolated or, um, or iso I guess isolated at all. I mean, it was normal to readjust pretty quickly. I guess like now it's different because I'm like known, like people will look at me weird, like, because people don't know how to approach people that they know or see on the internet, yeah. you know? So you'll have those interactions. Um, I think at first I was so worried about like, cause I live in Danbury, like how people would I was always just like, oh, you're the prison guy and stuff. And now I'm the prison guy, but in a funny way because they see me on TikTok. Right. And people find it funny. Like so many, it's a billion viewership market, right. prison talk uh, and, and YouTube, uh, prison YouTube, yeah. you know? Um, 
people watch it because it's like the unknown. It's like why people are obsessed with murderers and why people are obsessed with aliens yeah. and all that. It's the unknown, you know? Everyone has had sex before, so they know about like the sex stuff and that might not be engaging, but to find out like what it's like to eat in prison or do these things, it's, people take interest to that. What do you think is the biggest misconception about you? About me? Um, I just think that people thought I was like this rich white kid growing up that like got everything handed to him and like scammed people. And it's really not that at all. Like I was always a hardworking kid. I had a, a really good work ethic. I still do. And I think that's what makes me different from your average creator because of my work ethic and, you know, my drive and um, I'm just hungry. And I think like when you get to know me, like as a person, it's not like, like if you Googled Ian Bick and then got to know like Ian Bick, like, I just think it's like, it's, it's very different, you know? Um, and I, and people like, cause I have a podcast that's very guest driven. People don't really get to see like that inside of me. Like, yeah, I'll chime in on some of my thoughts and feelings, but it's not like I'm not sitting there saying, Hey, this was my day. This is who I'm dating. This is what I'm doing. You know, I don't really talk about that. Right. I try to keep that like aspect private too. Cause I used to be like, so down your face, like post a picture of food or do this. And like, who the fuck cares? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> I, I feel, care about I putting out good content. And I know other influencers have to do that, yeah. you know, because that's, uh, that's their brand, yeah, you know? Uh, so now me, I'm just being very strategic in what I post and being more like, I guess, mysterious in what I'm doing and not like I was the person that used to get an email about something exciting and I'm like big things of the works. But now I'm like, you know, right. if it happens, great. If it doesn't yeah. no, And you know, I think actions are louder than words. So when people see it happen. Is it fair to say when you were younger that you were insecure? Definitely. You do, know? do you feel like you're still insecure? Um, I don't know, maybe some days. Like I, my confidence has built like as I've become a better podcaster and, and grown a presence and, you know, worked hard in the gym and whatnot. But yeah, I'm shy, you know, like I'll, I'll I'd be afraid to like reach out to someone or DM someone, but I've gotten more, I guess, stamina, I guess you could say with doing that, you know, I'm starting to realize my value more. Um, and I think it's just about lining, aligning with the right people um, in your life. When you, when you have someone that actually values you, then it makes you realize, you know, like I have a good business partner now who like values me and like, you know, uplifts me and whatnot. And I, I never really had that before. So you kind of start to learn your value, you know, so you walk away from certain things and you, you mature as a person and stuff. It's, you know, you have your bad days, you have your good days. Do you, from a, uh, you know, relationship standpoint, specifically with, with women coming out of jail, is it extra hard to kind of reconnect on that level and and be romantic um honestly it's like a it's the tool you know um what's weird is like i i it's harder like with the people that are local to me but like all the time in my dms like i have like women from like in different states you know that like they they like that bad boy image like they like i have like that look to me i'm like the nerdy kid but i have the tattoos right um and i'm well built and um they like that and, and i you know they look at me as smart um when i got on tinder like back before covid coming out of prison like you'd have people that would be like oh my uh, pr uh my professor just presented about your case in my criminal justice Jesus. class <laughs> um but a lot of the times like the people it would be a tool and then you'd have the girls that didn't know and then they'd find out after and then like 
they don't, it's like when you're young, I mean, this was a few years ago, like they don't want to necessarily bring that home to the parents or have that conversation. But now like when you're dating older and stuff, I think I'm not just like a felon, you know, like I'm someone that has his own business is very driven. They look at that first. The other stuff is, you know, irrelevant. Does part of you feel any shame for your past? Uh, I, I wouldn't say really shame. Like I'm, I'm very open about it and I talk about it and I think it's like so much more than about me now and about my past. Um, I think it's about what came from it. And I think another mitigating factor is I was so young. Yeah. This is over 10 years ago. I was young. I made a lot of mistakes. And now I think people should just give me the opportunity to fix it and not do the same things again. I think it would be different if I was out here trying to promote a club or get into the club nights. Like I want people hit me up all the time. Hey, can you come promote this or whatever? The only time I will ever promote something like that again is if they're paying me to come to like the club to sit there for an appearance. Right. But I will never do that. Maybe I'll own a nightclub one day, but. How do you walk away from something that once gave you so much thrill? I think you find something else to put that same energy in. And really I'm doing the same thing I did before, just it's online. So instead of selling tickets, I'm pushing for views. Instead of booking artists, I'm booking podcast guests. The business I'm in now is literally a replica. You have an audience that just no risk and there's only gain. You're not spending shitloads to to make something. Um, And it's just my time and energy and it's a one-man show, really, you know? As it expands, there'll be more people, but I'm not depending on anyone else. So it's a much better business model. I think too, you know, it's where we're in a lot of ways, I'm sure at the time for you and your family and your friends, like it's scary to think that you got into trouble at such an early age. But in a lot of ways, I think it's maybe the most, the most beneficial thing that could have ever happened to you. Do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I, th- I think going to prison was the best thing. I always thought that my story was the nightclub stuff and that it ended there. And that's kind of similar to like Billy's situation where he has the Firefest story. But what makes me different is that I don't care about the nightclub story anymore. That's not my focus. My focus is prison. And that's what like the Anna Delvies and the Billy McFarlands and all those people that got their documentaries never focused on. It's never about prison. Like you watch those documentaries, they're not getting into that. Right. So that's where I was able to stand out. So when they do make a movie or they do make a TV show or the book or whatever, you know, that's going to be a big part of it because that was a unique experience. But how do you find longevity in this? Because a lot of people have gone to jail and a lot of people have gone to jail for white collar crimes and fraud. And and I think I think you are particularly good at explaining it, but I'm sure there's times where you're like, okay, well, if I want to do this podcast or this content thing for the foreseeable future, I have to find new ways of of innovating the content. I mean, that's why I don't really talk about myself anymore. Like when I go on podcasts and post clips of my stories, that's me talking about me, but on my podcast, I'm not telling stories of what I did or my experience unless it relates to someone. Right. So I look at it as it's the best genre because you have millions of people that went to prison. Yeah. You ask any one of those people, they all have a different perspective right. on their experience. And then you have addiction, you have childhood trauma, which is was like our Chevy Chase angle. There's so many different ways. What my podcast is, it's a trauma pod. So there's so many different ways you could go around that. Do you feel like you experienced severe trauma? I would say so. I mean, like what I went through is very traumatic. You know, I would, I, yeah. Do you, therapy or any active, um, I guess, coping mechanisms for it? I did therapy for a year after prison, which was court ordered. And then like that therapist ended up retiring and 
tried a new one and never got back into it. Um, but um, I do boxing. I, I do um, the gym a lot. So that's a good method. And just talking to people I talk to now, like yeah. that's therapy. My job is to talk to people, you know, for hours on end. So it's very therapeutic to talk to someone. I love listening to like motivational TikToks or motivational YouTube stuff. I like I like that stuff. I like a good comeback story. So do you feel like for you, it's all about the comeback story? Absolutely. I'm a big like underdog comeback person. Like, you know, I just, I like that. You know, I like the people that work hard. I like the people that are looking to redeem themselves, which is why like I like the guests that no one knows about. Cause those are like the stick it to the, to the man type of people where it's like, okay, the big news organizations, the Netflix is whatever, didn't want to hear their story. I'm hearing their story, putting it on a platform and you know, it's it just good. Where, where do you, where do you go from here? Like, is it just podcasts or there are other, other fields that you want to, that you want to touch? I mean, I think it's very obvious that you have a very clear entrepreneurial spirit. So like, I'm sure that there, it's not just this avenue. No, I mean, I have my podcast, which is my baby. And then I'm, I have a studio where we're building clients, um, you know, managing their podcast, kind of using my recipe for success and converting it into their recipes and creating new things. Um, I'm getting into boxing myself. Um, I actually have a fight on Wednesday, like an amateur thing. And, really? you know, we're trying to get into like rough and rowdy and, you know, that whole celebrity thing, because it goes aligns with my brand, sure. you know, then there's public speaking. I'm working on a book. Um you know, there's so many things. When you're a creator, an influencer, I guess you could say, there's so many directions. Um, been approached by TV shows and, you know, things of that nature. So you'll, you'll see what happens. But, um, you know. How tall are you? 5'11". Because I know Billy was looking to get into boxing. So Yeah, I since called you... him out. I was wanted to do something with him. I think it would be great, but it's probably I think what you should. Better. I think you and Billy could, could really fight. I think that would be awesome for like a great restitution event. I think that would be huge. And I know like Barstool would have, uh, you know, sponsored it with him. I think he's got to get serious and do something. But me versus him would do So you know I've, I've sparred with him. You have? Yeah. Did he win or no? He... So he's actually really good at jujitsu. So I'd keep I would keep it on the feet if I were you. Yeah. I would keep into like he, I think he wants kickboxing or boxing is what the last I heard of it. Um, you should present it to him, man. I will, and I will promote it, and I'll get a cut of the of the of the promotion. Dude, I'm not even in it for the money. I think it would be a great. <laughs> well, I'm, fight. I am. So <laughs> yeah, I think it would be a great fight. I have the audio listeners to really sell this show. Yeah. You know, and the social media following. Um, I will I, present it. To yeah. Him. I don't Give think he would do it, but I think it would be a great matchup. Would you would you do kickboxing? Yeah, I would probably. I, I'm down for whatever. I wouldn't do like jujitsu. No, I, don't do jujitsu. Yeah. He probably wouldn't do that either. Also, I, I would do kickboxing, but boxing where is where it's at now, anyways. You know, it's true. You guys get on misfits or something like that. Yeah, all listen. If he went, I know. Like I was hearing some things that he like backed out of a bar stool thing. Like he did this whole thing and backed out. But like, there's people that would pay for that because he's got that name, household name recognition. Um, but you know. We'll see what happens. Man. I mean, honestly, I think the more you call him out, you know, the more people, you know how this shit goes. If you yeah. watch UFC or boxing, like the more you hype it up, the more I think it becomes a an appealing offer. And I think, yeah, if it's for restitution and I mean, God bless y'all. If you can, if you could pay back big, big chunk of your restitution, he could pay back. Well, he's got a little bit of a bigger, <laughs> a bigger price to pay. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure he would do it. I think it would be a great fight. Great matchup. Great story. Have your... Have you actually had conversations or are you mostly just like... No, I made some videos and stuff, but I was like, you know, this dude wouldn't even come on the pod. So, you know, I, I don't even... It, it's a, My social media platforms are bigger than his. They're like way... They're, 
I have I have something going, you know, for me. I don't, I don't I know. I think why. it would. You guys, <laughs> that would be a very. Are you? Do you have good hands? Are you good? Yeah, yeah I'd say I'd say I'm pretty decent. How, how often are you training? Six days a week. Oh wow! Okay, so yeah, you're like serious. I, about I train it. at AJ Galante's gym from the okay. Trashers. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so you're serious about, I mean... No, I've been training since April, yeah. That's why I'm oh, doing, wow. like, this first fight Wednesday, get my feet wet in the ring and stuff. Okay. Um, but, yeah. This no. is your first amateur fight? Yeah. Ever? Ever, yeah. Wow. Yeah. How many rounds? Three two-minute rounds. Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah. like, a fun, like, event um, in, in Westchester, but... Um, Do you know you're fighting? Yeah, I actually sparred with the guy. He's, like, a hotel owner. He's in, like, his late 40s, <laughs> early 50s. How's... It's, like, a fun thing. Oh, wow. Know? Early 50s. Yeah. So he's just doing it to fuck around? He's fought before. He's got more experience than me interesting what's his re good record i don't know it's all yeah, like we're, there's yeah, not even weight classes yeah. oh wow yeah for this it's like a fun what, like, what do you weigh i'm 180 right now okay yeah yeah you guys could actually match you would just yeah. have a you just be a significantly taller he's pretty tall fuck it i always love a challenge yeah, you there know? you go um <laughs> where do you hope that you're at in i mean hey what when you get out of jail, 2021. 2019. 2019. Four years ago, you're in jail. Well, more or less. Yeah. Where do you hope to be in, in four years from now? I have no idea, man. Like, this year has been such a crazy, like, in January, you know, you Google, I was Googling, can you make money on a podcast? And they're like, don't quit your day job for it. You know, it's the hardest thing to stand out. Yeah. In. And yeah. I was on a bad luck streak with whatever, all my business ideas, so... You know, and even the first few months of starting, I didn't know For where sure. it was going. So, like, to have this now and to kind of see that direction and just continuously building that. And, you know, there's going to be so many opportunities, mm -hmm. like, in the industry and what comes, like, because the prison influencer world, a lot of advertisers don't really touch that. Yeah. Because a lot of those guys aren't serious or yeah. they present themselves. So, now I'm kind of, like, in this new community where I'm, like, the outlier. So, we're getting, we're starting to get the big brand deals. So, I think that'll just lead to so many different things, you know? Um, which is really exciting. I just had a great talk with Tyson, uh, Mike Tyson's um, brand, Tyson 2.0, and they're they're featuring me in an article that they're working on on redemption and stuff. So, you know, I think when you get big brands that align yeah. with you like that, you know, and we have some really like big guests I'm getting put in the wor the room with, which is going to be cool. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. And you're completely, you're no more probation, no nothing. Nothing. I got off May 2022 last year. Good. Um, I mean, look, you know, like, I think when it's funny when I when I see these two sides, you know, I've I've hosted the mob podcast for a long time, so I see that side and there's the people that say, you know, fuck the criminals and <laughs> fuck the like there's the other ones that root for them. I think and I've sat down with a lot of them. You realize like some deep down I think don't it's it's really hard for them to acclimate to be a regular person in society especially if they were making big money or like knew what it was like to make big money mm -hmm. um but I think that you have the absolute right mentality in terms of like doing things the right way and, and it's not even just doing them it's also just being feeling okay with doing it the right way and feeling okay with yourself and um you know I think I think like I'm rooting for you you know I'm sure a lot of people are and uh you know I I hope that you get everything you want and you pay back all the people you have to pay back and move on and you did your time. And, and I think that I hope that m people that are listening right now and people that listen to you feel the same way. Um, so I want to thank you for, for coming on and, and taking the time and driving down here. Uh, and, uh, 
you know, keep keep doing what you're doing, and uh, I'll set up that fight with Billy. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate the kind words and for having me, man. It means a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks, man.